2: This episode of The Lundown is dedicated to the memory of Christopher Woodward, who passed away last week. Christopher was an accomplished architect, but is perhaps best known to listeners as the author, along with Edward Jones, of Guide to the Architecture of London, a seminal and robustly opinionated account of the city's best buildings. It's a book which has been an invaluable resource for Open City's staff and volunteers in researching London's architecture since it was published, and which we thoroughly recommend. Christopher's last major professional project was collaborating with the Architecture Foundation to build an app version of his book with an expanded set of entries. So, in memory of Christopher, we really recommend taking the time to download that app and seeing our city through his eyes. It's brilliantly written, free to download, and a fantastic legacy to leave London and Londoners.
1: National mourning and mass cancellations in the wake of Queen Elizabeth II's death. London's pubs and restaurants in jeopardy as cost of living spirals. Sadiq Khan praises Scottish rent freeze as exactly what Londoners need. And London feeds itself, Jonathan Nunn's new guide to London's food culture. My name is Rachel Coppell. I work at Open City and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in the Design District is Jonathan Nunn. Jonathan is a food writer and editor of the newsletter Vittles. His new book, London Feeds Itself, published by Open City, launches this week. Welcome to the show.
3: Pleasure to be here, Rachel. All
1: right, we're going to kick it off with the Queen's Day. A period of national mourning has swept across the UK following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the country's longest serving monarch. In the wake of her death, newspapers and magazines and television channels have been running wall to wall coverage of her legacy. Open City has meanwhile detailed more than 100 buildings opened by the Queen in London during her seven decades on the throne, from schools to hospitals and airports. While the second Elizabethan age of architecture mainly revolved around ribbon cutting, The same cannot be said for the new king, Charles III, who was proclaimed successor to the throne in a ceremony at St. James's Palace last weekend. Along with the environment, architecture and urban planning are some of the new king's passions. And he also had a major role in the creation of Poundbury, a traditionally styled planned settlement in Dorchester. His dislike of modern architecture is very well documented but as alluded to in his first address as king, as head of state, he will no longer be able to work on the issues he cares so deeply about. In the wake of the Queen's death, thousands of people have visited Buckingham Palace and other royal residences across the UK to express their condolences. Officials have even had to ask mourners to stop leaving marmalade sandwiches and Paddington Bear toys after they began to pile up at the palace gates. But some feel the displays of national mourning have gone too far. Despite there being no official obligation to cancel events, football matches, fashion shows, and even strikes have been pulled out of respect for the Queen. Hackney Carnival was shelved at the last minute, leaving caterers who had made food for 300 people in the lurch, while others also questioned whether the cancellation of a Hammersmith Council's car-free day was an appropriate tribute. So, Jonathan, the Queen's Step is a major moment in UK history. What's it like to be a Londoner right now?
3: I don't know. It feels very unreal. Um... And, I mean, I'm personally going through a very chaotic week right now, um, sort of in my personal life and with the book launch. And it's weird to see that sort of my own chaotic mind reflected in, like, the national psyche.
1: Were event organizers and councils being respectful in cancelling events like Hackney Carnival? And what would the impact be on small businesses and caterers for things like this?
3: I think it was a massive misstep and a, a really, I think... For a lot of thing, businesses, not just the Hackney Carnival, but a lot of things were being cancelled, I think it feels like a miscalculation. Maybe if this had happened sort of in the early 2010s, I think there would be, I think things would be different. I think there might be a little bit more understanding about these things. But I think now it's not a particularly good time for the country. It's not a particularly good time for London I mean, I think the Queen's Death was announced Thursday, decisions were made on Friday, they'd already had the food. They'd already put in the orders. Um, so I know a few people who, um, had a huge amount of money like bound up in that carnival and then suddenly had to find somewhere else to sell the food before it goes off.
1: Yeah, there seemed to be a lot of focus on um on perception and oh gosh, what are people gonna think? We have to we have to cancel, we have to appear respectful cancelling because they're afraid of being cancelled. Um.
3: It's it's very strange what we consider to be respectful and disrespectful or not but there is this sort of mass, kind of like everyone has to pretend that it it would have been. Like, yeah, the Queen loved going to carnival and <laughs> it's really sad that she can't go this year, so we're going to have to cancel it. It's, it's obviously nonsense. It must be incredibly fascinating for, an, a, I think, especially a non-British person to be in London right now. And I think they're getting a really unique insight into like the psyche of the British. And like Londoners like, sometimes think that they're not British. like They're somehow like immune from this kind of thing by being in the capital city. And they're not like, I think (laughs) Londoners are kind of showing that they're just as British as like everyone else in the country.
1: Wow, that's so that's a really fascinating observation that Londoners often don't think that they're British.
3: Yeah. And I I think London, I think I don't know how much of that is internalized from people outside of London saying that they're not British Mm. or that London is not England or not Britain.
1: Yeah, it is. It is an amazing sort of London as a city is this amazing portal into so many other worlds as we see in your book that we'll talk about later through food through culture as prince of wales the new king campaigned on issues like environment and architecture and even organic food is it important for him to set those issues aside now that he's head of state or do we really need more leadership on big issues like these right now
3: um the writer hugh Lemmy says something quite interesting about king charles which and and the queen and kind of the perceptions of them and he said that one um reason why the queen was kind of beloved is because you could really see that like what she was doing was like a duty Mm -hmm. like to the nation as in like she didn't really like it like it was a it was a hassle (laughs) um and like the queen and the queen like did it all without like visibly complaining mm. and people kind of respect that and he said king charles's weakness is that he likes things too much and the british hate that <laughs> they really they no. really hate to see anyone enjoying themselves and <laughs> i thought that was such a perceptive observation and it's going to be very interesting sort of seeing how people deal with the fact that king charles clearly does have these passion projects which aren't just, like, horse racing. Like, they are sort of serious things which have an effect on people's lives. And, I mean, his views on architecture, like, whatever you think of them, are, like, interesting and deeply held.
1: The Queen was no foodie, according to a Hello! magazine interview with a former royal chef. But in many cultures, food and music are a huge part of the mourning and grieving process. Marmalade sandwiches aside, what should Londoners be eating now to celebrate or mourn?
3: Well, I mean... The marmalade sandwiches thing is very fascinating because, like, her connection with Paddington goes back about a few months. Um, like, I don't think the Queen is on record as being a fan of Paddington, no. and it's it's quite funny seeing this like association with Paddington and marmalade sandwiches as if like this is like a huge part of Queen law. <laughs> yeah, there's sort of no recorded documentation of this. And I have like, a feeling that the Queen might actually like, have hated this. I've been thinking about whether to do like a whole newsletter on the idea of like a new coronation food. Because like coronation chicken was invented. I forgot if it was for her I think it was for her coronation, not mm-hmm. Victoria's. It was invented and like, it obviously had context in what Londoners and, and people in Britain ate at the time, which was um, cold sandwiches. So it's a sandwich filling. It's fairly cheap, and it uses ingredients that you might expect to find in a British larder: uh, raisins, sort of uh, uh, curry powder, and obviously that link to empire as well. So, with all that in mind, I've been thinking about like what would like the coronation food be for King Charles. Um, and it would have to be something like very on trend, I think, like a coronation lab or a coronation a coronation burger or something and, or a s- sort of coronation small plate in a restaurant. But I reckon that every PR company in London has thought of this like by now and that you' what you're gonna see is every single restaurant like put on like a stupid coronation dish.
1: We've got an additional question from our acting editor Merlin Fulcher. The media is predicting massive crowds coming to the capital with potentially a million people descending on London for the lying in state over the next few days. Could this be a traffic nightmare or actually a big boost to London's independent business sector such as restaurants?
3: I don't think restaurants are going to be boosted by the queue because people are going to be in the queue and the queue is not going to be a particularly fast moving one. So I wonder how much of a boost restaurants along the Kew route will get. Because it's it's an interesting route. It goes, like, all the way from Westminster along the river to, I think, like, Bermondsey. Um, And I wonder, one, are those restaurants going to be allowed to be open? Uh, And two, like, how possible it is to get from the queue to like a good restaurant because my favorite restaurant 40 Maltby Street is like five minutes from that queue and they do very good sandwiches and I think if you were clever like you would go to 40 Maltby Street and like buy 20 sandwiches and then like hawk them along the queue for like 100% markup
1: that's not where I thought that was going to <laughs> I thought you would say wait in line with...
3: No, no, that's what I I would do, Um, like a ticket tout.
1: All right, I'm going to go to the next story, restaurant industry. The City of London has lost 14% of its restaurants since the start of the pandemic, according to recent reports in the FT. One in seven businesses shut down as office workers cleared out of the square mile. The restaurants and bars that did survive the pandemic are now being hit by soaring energy bills due to the cost of living crisis. City AM has reported how one pub in London, which had an annual energy bill of £31,000 in 2021, saw an increase to £86,000 at the start of this year. BrewDog has meanwhile announced it is closing six pubs, blaming soaring costs and a clueless government. Which all begs the question, is the worsening economic picture destroying London's food culture? So Jonathan, you obviously spend quite a bit of time in London restaurants. How tough is it out there right now for restaurant owners, big and small?
3: It's massively tough. I think more existential than the pandemic ever was. I mean, from talking to people I know that this is actually far more existential to their business um, if there isn't government intervention. It's as if the pandemic happened and then there was no furlough scheme. Every restaurant owner I know has sort of insane energy bills coming up, potentially. I have a bad feeling that, like with a lot of things, chains will like weather through and it will be sort of the really small businesses who are going to suffer from this. One sort of positive thing about the pandemic was a lot of businesses which were really integral to their community became even more integral, um, and they were loved already, and therefore they were being used a lot, even if they were being used in another way. I think this time um, that might not be the case so much. Um, I don't... I think the... Yeah, the... um, the crisis in just cost of living is going to mean that people are going to be using these places le- less and less. So, yeah, it's really bad at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah, that's the
1: first thing to go, isn't it? It's
3: eating out. Yeah, you're now pubs. Um, I think it's situation is really bad for pubs, um, and I don't know. It feel it feels a bit different from 2008, which had a really significant effect on eating out in not just London, but I think the entire country, because everything that happens in London kind of percolates down. But, I mean, when 2008 happened, um, the London restaurant industry really rearranged itself. And what you had was this, like, sudden proliferation of very simple um, comfort food at a low price point. And I don't know if you were in London, like before 2011 but like you could not get a good burger here like and it's really like weird talking about that like but it's true you could not get a single good burger in the entire city um and then suddenly you had this like um sort of like yeah proliferation of burgers of hot dogs of um sort of like Casual fast food done well because all that energy, which was going into sort of other things, was like suddenly going into like this sort of very s- sort of simple thing, which was like before that perceived as like a kind of irrelevance. So you, the London London food culture was like very much changed by that, and in some ways for the for the in a positive way. Like I think the casual sector did really well. I'm not sure what's going to happen now I think I think restaurants are menus are becoming simplified which is potentially a good thing Um, instead of having a lot of options on the menu to really cut down to something that can be done at scale um, and that doesn't use too many different ingredients. and in that sense, it becomes a good creative challenge for restaurants, almost like trying to smuggle, kind of smut behind the haze Code. Like directors got very good at doing that mm. and maybe restaurants will get very creative with what they do. Um, but then in another sense, like if if you are lit- if you literally like cannot run your business, then that, that all goes out the window. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that there will be... There will be something unexpectedly good that will come out of this, but I'm not sure what it is, and even if it will outweigh all the bad that's going to happen.
1: All right, I'm going to move on to the rent freeze. The Scottish government has announced an emergency rent freeze to help tenants with soaring rents. This means that rent increases will be illegal until March 2023 with an eviction ban also in place and follows years of campaigning by tenants' union living rent. The move was praised as bold, by London's Mayor Sadiq Khan. The capital's rental market has descended into chaos in recent months as a shortage of supply and increased demand combined to send prices soaring. Horror stories have emerged of bidding wars and tenants being handed huge rent hikes as landlords cash in on the highly competitive market. The situation is compounded by soaring energy bills. But likelihood of the new prime minister, Liz Truss, copying Nicola Sturgeon and bringing in a rent cap seems low. Her cabinet has six landlords and the new housing secretary, Simon Clark, has voted against upping fines for landlords who illegally charge tenants. Rents in London just keep rising. What is it doing to the city and to the people who come here seeking the joys of modern urban life? Would a cap or a freeze help?
3: Um. Well, yes, like, it would help, but like it's not, it's not nearly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, if two people, one of whom is a contributor to the book, actually, who are her just being evicted from their their flats, like perfectly legally, um, and it's such a major upheaval. One of them was describing it as like the most like psychologically like stressful thing that's happened um, in their lives recently. One of them was also saying that thinking about their own work as an activist, as a writer, sort of good things that have been going on in their area about uh, sort of community-owned businesses, pubs, and they were reflecting on like how these things have then been co-opted by estate agents, by landlords, like it then becomes like an advert for the area and it's just really hard to stop that and that's one of my fears about my own writing and about this book as well is you can never expect what your writing will end up being used for this whole project could be done and then like linked on like a developer's website as like this is a positive thing about the area unfortunately every i mean everything in the city is about rent Um, and about housing and about property like everything i mean this book is about property as well and everything that has happened in the london restaurant scene in the last 30 years is about property
1: london feeds itself is a new book edited by our guest today jonathan Nunn, and published by open city london is often called the best place in the world to find food A city where a new landmark restaurant opens each day, where vertiginous towers, sprawling food halls, and central neighborhoods contain the cuisines of every country in the world. Yet, there's another version of London that exists in its marginal spaces, where food culture flourishes in parks and allotments, in warehouses and industrial estates, along rivers and A-roads, in baths, and in libraries. In a city of rising rents and gentrification, this book shows that the true centres of London food culture can be found in ever more creative uses of space. It contains 25 essays about 25 different buildings, structures, and public amenities seen through the eyes of writers, architects, journalists, and politicians. All right, so why did you decide to write this book?
3: The way I feel about it is I go to Bookstores and look at the London section where there's a lot of stuff about food, and I've never seen one book that reflects anything about the experience of Londoners and their relationship with food. They're very much, and my feeling was, could I edit a book where in a hundred years' time people look at it and say this is what Londoners liked and what gave them pleasure and what how they ate every day. And so that's what that's partly what the book is about. I think I wanted it to be about looking at like what what is happening right now and like what direction is London going in.
1: You've written that writing about London means being in a constant state of grief for lost spaces such as the markets or buildings like the newly demolished Elephant and Castle shopping center, for instance. Is this part of a city's ebb and flow or? Do you think London maybe is at risk of losing some of its
3: essence? Well, I think think it's part of being in a city. Mm -hmm. And I think um, to be in love with a city means the kind of inevitability of falling out of love with it as well. Um, Because it changes too much. It changes too quickly. Everything that you fall in love with starts to disappear. So it is part of the ebb and flow, but it's not... I don't want it to be a passive thing. I, I want the book to make really passionately make the case for the things that we think should stay, for things which are anomalies in like a, a London, which is becoming a lot more homogenized. But what I wanted to make a case for was places we eat at every day and like why that might make them a little bit different from a lot of the restaurants that you see in guidebooks.
1: It's not a listicle of great places to go get a burger. It's an yeah. exploration of culture, of people, of place, of food. And so you are I, I would say, I think of you as someone who has this sort of, like almost a, a London cabbie style knowledge of the city's food landscape where i could just give you a street and you'd be able to tell me what i can get to eat there (laughs) um i won't test that but um when you were editing this book was there anything that you learned from any of the contributors that you can think of off the top of your head that was surprising or exciting to you that you learned
3: yeah what i really enjoyed learning was um the ways in which we often homogenize communities erase the, the very um, real complexity of those communities in the way that they're actually very heterogeneous. And one essay from actually um, Open Cities' first book, which was edited by Owen Hatherley, was about Green Lanes. Green Lanes is like one, like, an important road for me personally, just because of where I grew up. Um, but also it was the first article I ever wrote. It was a guide to Turkish restaurants on Green Lanes. And it was, it was a walk through Green Lanes from it's like source in Newington Green up till about I think maybe like Clissold Park, and there was there was food involved because obviously there's like some great lambician places there, um, but it was a really great um, essay on like the different factions that you can find along this road, which is like so consistently just been called Turkish from the sort of more nationalistic Turkish Cypriots to left-wing revolutionary Turks to right-wing Turks to the Kurdish community as well, which are, I guess, both part and not a part of the Turkish community. So that essay ends saying that they want to talk about the Kurds, but there's no space left for word counts. And so Mele Kerdal's piece um, about the warehouse um, sort of takes off from that essay and talks about the Kurds. And um, a lot of stuff in that essay I I had absolutely no idea about, um, about how all this restaurant culture started in these garment warehouses and how integral the garment warehouses were to... The restaurant scene which we can kind of consider to be like a London vernacular and we call Turkish but is actually like very very Kurdish um, and rooted in that kind of specific experience of being a Kurdish immigrant in London in a city which doesn't consider you visible. Either, even the essays which were like more personal to me and things I was already interested in I think every essay has, like, had, some, had something which has, like, completely surprised me and floored me. So I hope that's the same with sort of everyone who reads it.
1: I think that's a great selling point. If every essay in this book managed to surprise you, this is definitely a worthwhile read. So my last question for you is, what are you having for your tea?
3: Um, well, it's, um, it's book launch tonight, which means that I'm just going to be, like, probably too nervous to eat. Or like, if I was clever, like I could go round to Sai K from here, which is um, a dim sum place in North Greenwich, if I wanted to sort of treat myself. But I have no idea, basically.
1: All right, so we're going to move on to the the culture section of our podcast. Uh, so before we get into what we're pushing, Jonathan, what is on your culture radar for the weeks ahead? Are there any cool shows, gigs, or exhibitions that you are itching to experience?
3: Um, I'm trying to go see In the Black Fantastic at the Haywood. And I actually tried to go Sunday. um, And it's because it's stopping next Sunday, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tried to go, and there were like no tickets for like three, four hours, which is, I guess, great because it shows how sort of subscribed that um, exhibition is. I ended up going to see Carolee Schneeman at the Barbican instead, um, which was great. Although it's like, I know it, you obviously don't have her performances there, which are like, I know you see them on film, but it's not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a great exhibition.
1: Uh, so we're going to push a few things. Uh, coming up, we have a new exhibition at the Design Museum by Yinka Ilori. It's called Parables for Happiness. London-based multidisciplinary artist Yinka Ilori is known for his Technicolor pavilions and patterns inspired by West African textiles. This is his first museum display and will feature 100 objects, ranging from artworks, photographs, and furniture to textiles, books, and personal possessions. The show includes the Laundrette of Dreams, which was built from more than 200,000 Lego bricks and designed through workshops with primary schools in East London. It will also showcase his fascination with chairs. So Jonathan, is this something you check out? Absolutely. And how important are projects that bring doses of joy to cities like London?
3: I think that um, they make it worth living here sometimes. You, You think about like, You think about all the things you're wrong with London. I'm sure, like most of us listening, like would have thought during the pandemic, like why? Why am I actually here? Like, what? What am I? Yeah. What what am I doing? Why am I even here? Yeah. um, And for a lot of people, that meant like leaving. Like that they came to the conclusion that actually they would be very much happier um, elsewhere but yeah they they um they are absolutely integral um i was in paris recently and i i was um went to the um museum carnaval which is uh the the sort of museum of the city of paris and talking they they were talking about um i think it was louis one of the louis i'm i'm not going to say which one but like how he was just like we need to like put all like, this money into the arts um, and just make Paris this, like, city of theatres and of opera and of beauty. And I guess, like, Charles II did it in, in London to some extent. But, like, yeah, if, like... If Charles III could do that and, like, marshal um, sort of a, uh, a flourishing of, like, artistic culture in London... Then he would probably get a lot of people on side. I think.
1: With our luck, though, it would just be like you know a, a trilogy of Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals.
3: Oh yeah, it would absolutely be that.
1: But you know, I mean, I guess if that's someone's entry point though to performance and culture, I can't, I can't blame them as long as they keep diving through. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show.
3: Our pleasure. Thank you. And
1: other than checking you out on vittles and being a subscriber to vittles where else can we find your work on social media elsewhere on the internet
3: yeah um i mean i'm on um i guess twitter and instagram instagram like my presence is like quite annoying in that i will just like post pictures of food often without any geotags and yeah i end up writing about it eventually but it can be very annoying um for um followers like in that interim period twitter i just mainly like tweet rubbish so those two places and then um yeah sometimes i need to london as well um and but like really like the entirety of like the last year all of it's gone into london fees itself so um I would say buy the book because I think it's pretty good Um, as a fan of like the essays in the book. I'm a big fan.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jonathan.
3: Cheers.
2: You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at @opencitylondon or by using the hashtag #LondonLNDDWN. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk/support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible, and equitable city.
1: Hold up, what was that?